In fact, back in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel was interpreting his first dream to him, even Daniel told him that he was a powerful man. God related that to him in the interpretation. In, uh, towards the end of that chapter, he was told several things. He was told that he was the king of kings. He was told that he had been given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. The sons of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, they had all been given into his hand for him to rule over them. He was told this by Daniel who was speaking from what God had revealed to him. This is what God was saying about Nebuchadnezzar. The case could be made that of all of the people on the face of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar had reason to think highly of himself. But what he failed to understand, and what most people fail to understand even today, is that God is the one to whom belongs all the glory, all the honor, and all the majesty. What Nebuchadnezzar had failed to grasp from what Daniel had told him back in chapter 2 was that God had given him all of that authority. And God had set him up to rule over the world at that point. Nebuchadnezzar failed to take God into account. Now, some might protest, but Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a believer. How can you expect him to take God into account? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was without excuse, just as all men are without excuse. In Paul's letter to the Romans in the first chapter, Paul makes it clear that men are without excuse when it comes to their relationship with God, when it comes to them denying God. There's no excuse for them to do that. Because everyone has an inherent knowledge of God. Everyone ought to know better. In that chapter, Paul explains that really what they're doing is rejecting the glory that belongs to God. And instead, they are redirecting that glory someplace else. In verse 22 of Romans 1, it says, Professing to be wise, they became fools. And then Paul says in verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Foolish man exchanges what rightfully belongs to God and instead seeks to glorify other things, himself, man, other people, birds, animals, crawling things, anything and everything except God. And that's idolatry. That's really what that is. To God and God alone belongs all the glory. And after that first chapter in Romans, Paul then goes along and explains how God has rolled out his plan of salvation in the, in the following chapters in Romans, how he has made salvation possible, how it is God alone who brings men to salvation, apart from their own depraved desires and their, their depraved thoughts, and he then ends the, the doctrinal part of the book of Romans with a statement on the glory that belongs to God at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, in verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul starts off that first major section of the book of Romans by showing 
that man has rejected God for other things and tried to take God's glory away from him, and he ends it by clearly showing that it is to God and God alone that all the glory belongs. All things are from him. All things are through him, and they are to him. They, all things belong to God, and all things owe their very existence to him. And it's because of this that pride has no place, that arrogance has no place, not only in the heart of the believer, but in the heart of human beings. That is the essential problem with people. Because pride and arrogance take the focus from where it truly belongs, takes it off of God the Father. Even in our salvation, even even in us as believers coming to Christ in, in salvation, the focus is the same. In the second chapter of the book of Philippians, we read this starting in verse 9. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why are we saved? God provided a means of salvation to us. Why did he do that? Why will all men someday bow the knee to the name of Jesus? It's so that God will be glorified. That's it. That's what it's all about. We live to give glory to God. We are saved to give glory to God. And not only us, not just believers, but all of the creation exists to bring glory to God. And someday all of the creation will once again glorify God. One more passage. I know we're supposed to be studying Daniel, but one more passage that I want to read for you is in Revelation chapter 15, when we start to look at where this all is leading someday, the course that human history is heading towards, there is a a song that is sung by the redeemed that shows this. In Revelation 15, starting verse 3, it says, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, you King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All the nations, all men and women will someday fall down and worship God. They will bow before him. They will recognize him as Lord of all creation. And they will bring glory to him. For some, for those that have trusted in him for their salvation, we will be able to do that Right there along with him, we will be in the very presence of the Lord. For, un, for others, and unfortunately, for most, they will do that in eternal judgment. Bringing glory to God through the payment of a penalty that they had chosen to pay themselves instead of accepting God's gracious payment for them. But in the end, God will be glorified because it all belongs to him. See, God does not demand to be the center of worship because of selfishness or a petty attitude. I can remember when I was a kid, I would think, well, if if God desires all this, doesn't that make him selfish? But no, it doesn't make God selfish. God is not selfish. He is not petty. He demands 
to be worshiped because he is the only one deserving of worship. He is the almighty God. And most people don't understand that. Most people have never understood that. From Daniel's day until now and beyond, people are going to take God's glory for themselves. In the case of King Nebuchadnezzar, now we'll bring this back to Daniel. In the case of King Nebuchadnezzar, he was a mighty man. He was put into his lofty position by God and he assumed that he had gained his position by his own doing. And God saw fit to show him the folly of his thinking. Folly that Nebuchadnezzar recognized for himself at the end. And we'll see that as we finish out this chapter. In this chapter, as we started to see a few weeks ago, in our last lesson together, Nebuchadnezzar has had another dream. It was a dream that came to him during a period in Babylon where they had no enemies. They were prospering greatly. Babylon was at peace and they were prospering greatly at this time. They had no fear, they had no need, and the king was inclined to take credit for all that was going on around him, all that Babylon was. So during this time, the king lays down on his bed one night and he dreams of a tree, a tree that stands so tall and grows to such a height that it can be seen from the ends of the earth. And this tree is so rich and full that all the birds take refuge in it and all the beasts lie in its shade and every living creature feeds itself from the fruit of this tree. This was a good tree. And so the the king is dreaming of of this tree and it's a beautiful picture and he was having this peaceful dream. But then the peaceful dream is shattered by the coming of an angel into the picture. And the angel says this, starting in verse 14. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Destroy it all. You see this beautiful tree? Now destroy it all. Chop it down. Rip the leaves off. Scatter the fruit. Scare all the animals away. Scatter them. But leave the stump. The stump of the tree is not to be touched. It's to be protected. It's to have a fence put around it, and it's to be left alive. We noticed in our previous study that an interesting thing happens halfway through verse 15. The tree, which is being talked about as an it, becomes a him midway through the, the, the verse there. And we get the first indication that this tree is now representing a person, right? It's representing a him instead of an it. And whoever it's representing, it's going to become like a beast. He's going to have his mind changed to think like a beast, and he's going to act like a beast. And he's going to live in the grass like a beast. And this is going to take place over seven periods of time, and we'll see that this means it will last for a period of seven years. Now, the king wants his dream interpreted, right? So that's kind of where we left it, right? The king wants his dream interpreted. He wants to understand it. And again, like he'd done back in chapter two, he had brought in his wise men, and they got a first crack at it. 
Back up in verse seven. But they couldn't interpret it. No big surprise, right? This was a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. The wise men with their books and all their worldly knowledge could not interpret a dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. So they had no idea what it meant. Um, and they weren't spiritually praised, so they hadn't been given that opportunity or that uh, ability to understand this mystery that God had given Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel, on the other hand, Daniel had a spirit of the holy gods in him, and no mystery baffled him. That's what Nebuchadnezzar knew about Daniel. And he was confident that Daniel could do this for him. Because over the years, Daniel had been, I mean, this is, this is probably some 30 years after we first saw Daniel, 30 or years or more after we'd first seen Daniel. And if you remember, Daniel was the second in command in the kingdom. So Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar had had many years by this point in time to get to know one another. And so Nebuchadnezzar was confident in Daniel's abilities to be able to advise him on things like this. And therefore, beginning in verse 19, we see Daniel interpret the dream for the king. But the first thing that we see comes somewhat as a surprise. Look at verse 19, just the very first part of that. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And if we stop there, Daniel here is appalled. He was astonished or perplexed is what this word means. Daniel was visibly shaken by what he saw in this dream, almost as shaken as the king was himself, except that Daniel was shaken not because of what he saw in the dream, but Daniel was shaken because of what he knew the dream meant. He knew, he knew right away that this was not a good dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And so it takes him a little while to compose himself as he thinks through this. Some translations say that it was for an hour. Some say that it was a moment. We really don't know how long uh, this while was, um, how long it took Daniel to compose himself. Um, but I don't see the king patiently waiting for Daniel to just sit there and say nothing for an hour. Um, but anyway, some time passes, maybe even several long minutes, and then the king finally has to break the silence himself. Um, what he says, the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. The king can see that Daniel is alarmed by this dream. And if you think about it, that can't be a comforting thing for the king. Before, when Daniel interpreted his dream, the king was frightened by the dream, right? Back in chapter two, the king was frightened by the dream, but Daniel comes in confidently and assuredly, and he tells him what it is that the dream means. Now, Daniel is shaken up too. And again, that's, that can't be a good sign, right? It's, it's like when you go to the doctor and you have, a, you have something that, you, that you're concerned about and, and you, you go to the doctor and, and you say, you know, I, I need some tests run or, you know, you tell me what needs to be done. The doctor comes in with the test results and you notice that he, he looks worried. And you notice that it takes him several minutes to find the words to say to you, right? Well, how would you feel in that situation? It's probably not a good sign, is it? When the doctor himself is having a hard time telling you what may be wrong. It's not really making you feel any better. Well, that's the situation that Daniel is really putting Nebuchadnezzar in here now. Well, at the end of verse 19, we see why this concerns Daniel so much. 
Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Daniel is concerned for the king. Daniel is concerned for his boss for the last 30 years. He's concerned for this man in whose presence he's served for almost his entire life at this point. He's concerned for someone who might even possibly be considered a friend of his. I mean, he's been serving with him for over 30 years. You'd think they would probably get some type of close relationship. But he says, if only this didn't apply to you, but to those who are your enemies, if only what I have to tell you applied to those who hate you instead of to you. Daniel truly wished that he didn't have to deliver this news to Nebuchadnezzar. He had compassion for the man. Now, if you think about it, Daniel could have been glad that the king was getting what he deserved, right? I mean, he had taken his people from their land, right? That's what Nebuchadnezzar had done. He'd taken all of Judah out of the land. By this point in time, all of the, the, three, um, uh, the three captivities had, had been accomplished at this point. Um, he had decreed to kill Daniel and his friends early, early on in their relationship together. And for all intents and purposes, Nebuchadnezzar had sent Daniel's friends to their deaths on at least one occasion, right? He threw them into a fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the nicest of guys. So there could have been a sense of, all right, this guy's finally getting what he deserves. But that's not Daniel's attitude. There's no joy to be had in the punishment of sin. God never takes joy in punishing people, and that's not something that we as his children should take joy in either, their judgment. And that's Daniel's attitude here. He's not joyful over what is about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He is alarmed. He's actually concerned by this. But in the end, he knows that he has to deliver the bad news. So look at verse 20. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. And here he just recaps the dream, right? The first part of it where Nebuchadnezzar saw the great tree. In this part of the dream, this is what that part meant. Verse 22. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. You are the great tree, he tells him. And that's some boldness on Daniel's part, right? Especially knowing what comes next. He does not back down from saying what needs to be said. He does not shy away from this. As hard as it may have been, for him to say it, he says it. And there's a part of me that thinks that maybe some of the other wise men could have possibly guessed at this. I wonder if that tree is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, maybe they had kind of an idea that maybe this was some of it, but even if they did, you wonder if they would have had, if they would have had the courage to say anything anyway. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to tell the king that he's going to be a tree that's chopped down. But Daniel doesn't back down. Daniel doesn't sugarcoat 
or leave out any of the parts that the king might find offensive or that the king might find difficult to swallow. He tells the king the truth. He tells the king what he needs to hear. Now, just like with the other dream where he told him, you are the head of gold because of your majesty and power, here he tells him, you are the tree. And we see once again that there's no separating Nebuchadnezzar from his kingdom. If you remember back in our discussion in chapter two, we said, well, how can, how can the king be a kingdom? Well, because Nebuchadnezzar had that kind of authority. He had that sovereign authority in his kingdom. He was, in essence, the kingdom, and he had become great, strong, and powerful. And so this is why the tree turned into a hymn toward the end of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar was the tree. So Daniel recaps the action from the dream in verse 23. And in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. Once again, he reiterates what the king saw so that there would be no question about what he's talking about. And this part of the dream where he saw the angelic watcher come down and make this decree and shout out these orders. Now after the recap, he's going to tell him what all that means, what that part of it means. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. Once again here, Daniel makes it very clear that this is the decree of God on King Nebuchadnezzar. That God is the one that is decreeing this. The God that Nebuchadnezzar claims to be impressed with, he's claimed it several times, that he has seen the power of God several times. Three that we know of, we don't know, um, there may have been more, but the Most High has made his decree on the king of Babylon. And this really is an indication of who is in charge. Verse 25, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Here is what is going to happen to the king. He's going to go from being the most powerful and prominent man in the world to being a raving lunatic. He's going to be utterly and completely humiliated. Now, as we look at this, there are six things that Daniel tells him here, six things that will end up happening to him. The first one is that he tells him he will be driven away from mankind. He's going to be separated out from the rest of the population. He's not going to associate with people, basically. He's the ruler of the people, and yet the Most High God has decreed that he will be driven out from among them. Now, the question is, where will he go? If he's driven out, where will he go? Well, that's the second thing that Daniel tells him here. He will dwell with the beasts of the field, it says. He's going to live with the animals, Dwelling where they dwell. 
Well, what's he going to do there? If he's there with the animals, what's he going to do there? And that's the next two things. He's going to eat grass like cattle, and he's going to be drenched with dew. He's going to feed from the ground just like cattle do. And if you ask, well, what's he going to do out there with the cattle? Well, what, what, what do cattle do? They eat and wander around. That's pretty much what they do, right? And he's going to sleep out in the open so, when, so that when he will be drenched with the dew in the morning, right, when he wakes, so obviously he's going to be outside at some point. Um, he's going to be drenched with dew. He's going to be living the life of an animal, now think about this just for a minute, just to, just to this point. This is what Daniel's telling him is going to happen to him. Think about if someone were to tell you this. This is what's going to happen to you. First off, we think that they were crazy saying this, right? This just doesn't happen. This isn't something that happens to people. But Daniel had proven to the king that he knew what he was talking about. The king was confident in Daniel's abilities to interpret dreams. Because he knew that he had the spirit of a holy God that was inside him. Remember, he said that a few times already. He recognized that there was a difference in Daniel. So now, if someone were to tell you that this would happen to you, and you had confidence that they were telling you the truth, how would that make you feel? Wouldn't that terrify you to hear that this was something that was going to happen to you? Maybe some of us, it would terrify more than others. I'm not much of an outdoorsman. I don't go camping. I, don't, I went camping once in like fourth grade. That was enough for me. Um, I'm not much of an outdoorsman. So I would be looking for a way to avoid this at all costs. Um, you like salad? What's that? You like salad? I like salad. Do you like salad? Uh, with dr- dressing. <laughs> I like salad as like the base, but then with a lot of stuff on top of it. I don't think, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar's getting croutons and uh, bacon bits. <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody threw him some, but I don't know. But we'll see that this was, this was not just even an overnight camping trip. This was no overnight outing either. That's the fifth thing that we see that Daniel tells him here is that there's a definite period of time that this is going to happen. In fact, Daniel tells him that seven periods of time will pass over him. And now there's some debate on how long this period of time was, mostly because a lot of people have a hard time believing that this could have taken place over a long period of time, even several years. And many have a hard time thinking that because that, that these periods could be years. Um, and one of the biggest issues, one of the biggest reasons why they don't think it could have been that long was because they think, well, the Babylonian throne could not have been empty for seven years. And therefore they say that this was more probably months or even, even weeks. And one commentator I read indicated that this might have been seasons, he said. Um, so if you think of the four seasons, maybe it was just a little less than two years. Now there is a sense where the word, so if you look at that word period of time, there is a sense where this word can be used just in a, in a general sense. Um, in fact, it's been used before in chapters two and chapter three just to re- just to refer to time as in it's time for something. Um, in chapter 2, verse 8, there's a phrase where it says, you are bargaining for time, just kind of used in a general sense. In chapter 3, verse 5, it was at the time you hear the sound of the horn. Again, it's used in a general way. So in that sense, it can be used like the way that we might use the word minute, 
for instance, right? We know that a minute is a definitive 60-second period of time, but we also use the word like, well, just give me a minute, or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be there in a minute, and you're just saying just a short period of time, right? But what we see here is that the specific time period of the word is really what's in view. This, is, this will be a specifically defined period. And I'll say that I believe that this is talking about years. And the reason that I say, that, say this is because this isn't the only time that Daniel uses this word in talking about a specific period of time and not just in a general sense. And, and we'll, we'll talk about it more when we get there, um, but in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to see another dream. And this dream in Daniel chapter 7 is a dream that Daniel has. And as a part of that dream, in the 25th, 25th, in the 25th verse of that chapter, we'll see that the Antichrist is going to be given authority for, it says, a time, times, and half a time. Or basically three and a half times. Now, again, you look at that and you think, well, okay, so what? It's still just times. And that's the same word used in chapter 4 could be weeks, could be months, could be seasons. Do we, don't we still have the same problem? Well, the thing is, you, we can look at Revelation chapter 13 and we see this statement made about the authority given to Antichrist, the same reference that we're seeing in Daniel chapter 7. Revelation 13.5 says, And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. So we see here specifically a defined period of time. Once again, in, in that context, we're talking about 42 months. Now, 42 months, 12 months, 24 months, plus 6 months, gets us 42 months, right? One year, two years, and a half a year gets us to 42 months, so three and a half years to correspond to the three and a half times in Daniel chapter 7. So the times that Daniel is speaking of in chapter 7 is a year. And in chapter 4, I would take it that that's what he's talking about there as well. That these seven periods of time that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be like an animal is going to be a seven-year period. Seven years of the king living like this. And now the last thing that Daniel says that will happen to the king, right? When all of this is going on, there's a sixth thing that he says will happen. The king will recognize the sovereignty of God. At the end of this time period, Nebuchadnezzar will recognize that God is sovereign. He will recognize that God is in control. There will be no doubt in the king's mind that God, not Nebuchadnezzar, is the one who's in charge. That God, God is the one who set him up and gave him the power and the authority that he has on earth, and he's going to know that. Now there's a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 26. It says, And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. What is it saying? 
Remember earlier we talked about the stump was left alive and not only was it left alive, but it was protected. It had an iron band or some type of fence put around it. This means that Nebuchadnezzar will regain his throne. He will get his kingdom back. And after he comes to his senses and acknowledges the sovereign authority of God. Those people that say that this couldn't have taken place over seven years because the throne couldn't have remained empty and just be left there for Nebuchadnezzar to take again. People that think that are forgetting something very important. God is assuring Nebuchadnezzar of his throne. God has decreed that it will be protected and therefore what's gonna happen? It's gonna be protected. It doesn't matter if it was seven years or 700 years. If God says that Nebuchadnezzar is getting his throne back, then Nebuchadnezzar is getting his throne back. Now in verse 27, the compassionate Daniel takes, or makes an appeal to the king. He says, therefore, O king, make, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Now, what's Daniel telling him here? Is this an appeal to works-based salvation? Believe it or not, that's what some people take this verse to indicate, that he's telling him to do these things to be saved. But that's not what this means. Daniel is trying to get the king to repent of his arrogance, to repent of his pride and his selfishness, because he knows that repentance could stay the hand of God's judgment. Right? If he's so arrogant that God is going to teach him this lesson, then get rid of your pride. Be humble. That was his only shot. That was the only chance that he had. Well, did he take it? Did he take Daniel's advice? Find out next. Verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Here's what happened. The scene turns to 12 months later, an entire year. Surely the king has turned from his ways. He's seen the light. He's listened to the wise man, Daniel, and he's begun to show mercy to others, right? Well, who knows? Maybe he did, right? It's 12, years, or it's 12 months later. Maybe right after these events, he did make some changes. Maybe the, the reason this happened a year later instead of the next day or the next month is that he did repent of his arrogance for a time. But if he did, he eventually turned back to his old ways because a year later, this is what we see, verse 30. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has built, uh, have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Sounds like a pride bomb went off in the room when he makes this statement here. How many eyes and mys can he get into one, one sentence here? You can, I picture him standing on his roof, puffing up his chest, looking out, and starting to, starting to say this, looking out over the majesty of Babylon, which he takes all the credit for himself. And we know from history and from archaeology that Babylon was a beautiful and majestic city, and, and Nebuchadnezzar had, done, had, had built it up nicely. And we're probably all familiar with the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, um, which Nebuchadnezzar supposedly had built to cool his wife in the heat of the summer. So there was a lot for Nebuchadnezzar to admire from his roof. 
So again, what is Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's taking all the glory that he sees around him and he's taking it to himself and not giving it to God. And that's a big mistake. In verse 31, I love this first part. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying. He hadn't even finished talking. He hadn't even finished glorifying himself. He was still exhaling those proud words from his puffed up chest when he heard this next part. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And the hammer comes down. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar, as he's hearing these words coming down to him, remembered the dream that he had a year ago. It was verbatim from what Daniel had told him a year earlier. And you know what's truly amazing and sad at the same time is that Nebuchadnezzar had a year to turn from his sin. He had an entire year to fix his pride. He was told what was coming. And even if he had managed to to suppress it or turn it down a little bit at a time, he failed to take care of his sin completely. Our God is truly a patient God. He's always accused of being quick to wrath in the Old Testament. People look at the Old Testament and they say, oh, God just, he just kills everybody in the Old Testament. He's just a wrathful, vengeful God. But he waited an entire year before he did this to Nebuchadnezzar. When God sent the flood to destroy the entire world, how long did he give people to repent of their sins? It took Noah 120 years to build an ark. And the whole time he was preaching, repent. God is not quick to anger or quick to act in judgment. And Nebuchadnezzar did not take advantage of the opportunity that God had given him. So the king is told that judgment's upon him. Glory is not for you, Nebuchadnezzar, because the almighty God is the one who has given you all that you have. He's bestowed it upon you and you did not take it or earn it for yourself. And that's one of the hardest lessons for people to learn. But here God is going to teach this lesson to him. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So this transformation takes place. He's driven out from human contact, he begins eating like an animal, living like an animal, and his appearance even becomes like an animal. And over the course of the next seven years, his appearance changes, right? Not surprising, really. I I don't necessarily think that this is a supernatural change. I don't think that immediately his claws grew and things. I think this is a change resulting from this life he was living, the, the way he was living. Some say that this was a form of boanthropy, which is a mental condition where a person believes themselves to be a cow or a bull. Um, It's entirely possible that God had caused something like that to happen here. I have no problem with that. As long as we acknowledge that it's clear that this was a condition that was brought about by God, that, that this wasn't just a coincidence or this just, just, wasn't just a mental breakdown brought about by years of stress, but this was a divine judgment on the king of Babylon. 
he was living in the field with the animals. We don't know for sure what went on during this time. Did they make a special area for him? Did they keep him penned up somewhere? Was he just off in the woods by himself? Um, He was driven from mankind, but this could indicate that he was simply just not part of the human race anymore because he was lost in his own insanity. There may have been people around him. We just, we just don't know for sure. But for seven years, he was like this. The king brought to his knees in humility. This is the ultimate humility lesson, isn't it? And then we see in verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and you notice what happens here right off the bat. He starts going back to speaking in the first person. I, Nebuchadnezzar. From verse 19 on, he's been referring to himself in the third person as the king. But now he's getting to the point that he started his decree back in the first uh, few verses of the chapter. He's getting to the point to the lesson that he learned from this whole experience. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. After seven years, his reason returns and he lifts his eyes towards heaven. There's a progression that we see in the way that Nebuchadnezzar responds to God. In chapter one, there's no indication that he acknowledges God, but he takes a fondness to the servants of God to Daniel and his friends. In chapter two, he falls down and pays homage to Daniel in an effort to acknowledge Daniel's God, but he just doesn't understand who God is or the way to worship God. In chapter three, it says he blesses the most high, but then he still makes references to God being the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here, now, I think he gets it. It sure seems like he does here. He lifts his eyes towards heaven and look at how he acknowledges God now. He says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? All that the king has seen has has accumulated into this praise. I think Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it. This is not just a record of a spur-of-the-moment emotional response, which his other responses always were. This is what he's writing later in his decree, still acknowledging the power and the sovereignty of God. It's his dominion and it's everlasting. It's his kingdom, and his kingdom endures. All the inhabitants of the earth, of which the king is one, are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will. This is a beautiful testimony to the one true living God, and Nebuchadnezzar is giving giving him all the glory that he deserves. And once again, there's no way to be certain until we see glory ourselves. If you don't think that Nebuchadnezzar is saved, then that's fine. We'll find out when we get to glory, right? But I think that we'll get to meet King Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a final piece to what happened to the king in verse 36. 
At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. God was faithful to the king. He restored his throne to him after seven years. And again, many people think this is foolish because they point out that in this kingdom, at this stage of world history, someone would have come and taken the throne. They would not have been allowed to remain empty for seven years. So they say that this is either nonsense or it was just a much shorter period of time than seven years. Now, I'll say we don't know how God preserved his throne, but we know that he did preserve the throne. And when God decides that something is going to happen, it's going to happen. However, I I do have something that I wonder about. Again, this isn't in scripture, but this is my my own theory, and you can take it or leave it. But I think that Daniel may have led Babylon for seven years. I think that makes sense. I think that God may have put his own man in charge of the nation's affairs for seven years. And if the king really did repent and become redeemed, God had a man on the throne for even longer than seven years in Babylon. Well, one of the reasons I think that is because who was second in command of the kingdom? Daniel was second in command of the kingdom. Daniel knew exactly what was going on. Daniel was next in line, just below the king. And who was underneath Daniel? Daniel had appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as his, as his men underneath him too. So while we don't often think of Daniel that way, he had political power, he, and he had the authority to assume control of the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. And when the king returns to his senses, who's there to give the kingdom back to Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel. Right, Because Daniel knows that God assured Nebuchadnezzar of his throne again. Um, so you can take it or leave that, or come up with your own theory, but I see that as a good possibility that Daniel might have been on the throne for those seven years. But in any event, God somehow preserved Nebuchadnezzar's throne. And not only that, but his advisors and nobles had no problem with accepting him back, seeking him out, and continuing with the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. You know, and it's amazing how God's sovereignty works. People that don't accept this as real or possible don't understand the sovereignty of God. If God put Nebuchadnezzar in power in the first place, he can restore him to power as well. That's not a problem for God. And even though he was a raving lunatic for seven years, his advisors had no trouble accepting him back as their king Just a wonderful testimony to the power of God. And in verse 37, we see the lesson learned. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. What did Nebuchadnezzar learn? To praise, exalt, and honor God, the king of heaven. No longer to praise, exalt, and honor himself. All the glory now belongs to God. When he thinks of himself compared to God, he's now humbled as all who walk in pride should be. Nebuchadnezzar got it. Finally, after all those years of spending time with Daniel, he understood who God is and who he was himself compared to God, which is accounted as nothing. Now, there's two lessons that we can take away from what we see here 
with Nebuchadnezzar, um, and I'll present these before we finish. The first one is that pride is a sin that we can't afford to dabble with. It's easy for us to take a look at people that we see as rich and powerful, world leaders, Hollywood stars, athletes, whoever we can think of, and have an attitude of, well, they need to be more humble. They need to watch out for that pride. And in many cases, yes, they do. I'll agree. But it's not only the rich and the powerful that need this lesson. It's anyone who ever took glory away from God. Anyone who ever looked at their bank statement and felt pride at what they were able to amass, whether it was a million dollars or a hundred dollars. It's for anyone who ever looked at the work that they accomplished from planting a garden to building a Mars lander and marveled at their own skill. And it's especially for anyone who took a look at his own life, their own spiritual condition, and thought to themselves, you know, I'm good enough. I've done enough good things in my life that I don't need anyone or anything else. That's pride. That's pure and simple. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so don't let pride get in the way of your relationship with God because pride becomes a stumbling block. For believers, that pride can get in the way of having a right walk with God because it makes us focus on ourselves instead of on our Lord. But for unbelievers, pride gets in the way of fixing that relationship between man and God. It gets in the way of salvation. Anyone that is hanging on to their own works for salvation being good enough or thinking that they're good enough, then they're going to be sadly disappointed someday. Salvation only comes through humbling yourself before God and accepting the gift of salvation that he has made possible through his son. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson, God is absolutely in control. The second lesson that we see here has to do with God's sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man. He was the leader of the known world at the time. The man whom God himself called the king of kings. And yet Nebuchadnezzar was not in his position by his own might. He was in his position because God determined that he would be there. We need to remember that it is God who sets up kings and kingdoms and it is God that removes them. It is God who sets up the governments of the world and has the entire world under his control at all times. God's plan is not thwarted by one king. It's not thwarted by one president. It's not thwarted, thwarted by one congress. It's not thwarted by laws or executive actions. When things happen that we don't like as believers, or even that we see as reckless, things that we see as dangerous or sinful, that does not mean that God has lost or that the world is winning the fight against God in some way. It means that it's in his plan to allow the world to be the world, even if we don't understand why. We don't have to understand everything that God's doing, and sometimes we don't. We are blessed to live in a country where we can vote our conscience 
and we have a say in our government process, and we can feel free to exercise those rights that we have in that process. But you know, that is a luxury that we have that quite frankly, most believers have never experienced throughout history. And many believers don't experience that even today. We are not guaranteed a say in how the world is run. That is for God to decide how that is all going to work out. We may vote, he may use our votes, but he is going to decide the outcome of things. And so just as it was back in Daniel's day, God is still in charge. He is still in control of it all. And that means that we don't need to worry, we don't need to have anxiety, we don't need to have panic attacks um, when we think that things may be falling apart around us. But we should take comfort in knowing that God is in God is still in charge. God is still in control. We just need to trust in him. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, and Lord, we just give you praise for um, this time that we have, Lord, in, in the book of Daniel. And we thank you, Lord, for the examples that we have here and the way that you've dealt with people throughout history. We thank you for uh, this lesson that you've given to Nebuchadnezzar in, in pride, Lord, that we can look back at and and see as an example even for our own lives. We thank you, Lord, that um, as, a, as a powerful ruler, um, that even he was humbled because, Lord, you are ultimately in charge. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that, that we know that we don't have to be concerned. We don't have to worry. We know, Lord, that we put our trust in you for even the day-to-day things. And, Lord, that ultimately, as believers, uh, we will be with you in glory someday. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, for the... Um, just the, that, that nothing can change that um, in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that it would not stop us from making it our life's mission to be sharing the gospel, to be a witness and a testimony for you, Lord, in this world. And just pray, Lord, that we would have opportunities to share who you are. I thank you, Lord, again, for this time. I thank you for the opportunity that we have in the next hour to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless that time and that we would honor you, Lord, with, um, uh, with the teaching, with, with listening and responding to your word, and, Lord, with the, the worship that we do. And, Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.